we're here with uh, a guest who doesn't need any introduction. It's the great, uh, the great Norman Finkelstein. Thank you so much for uh, spending your time with us. Uh, I think we might be uh, wearing the same shirt, actually. Uh, maybe it's possible. It's cosmic. Yeah, he's been following you. He wanted to impress you with his, yeah, his yeah, style. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. He knew he couldn't match your brain, so he figured maybe <laughs> I could buy a T-shirt that he had that he owns. Right. People should never underestimate their mental capacity. I agree, and and yeah. he's proven that to me time and time again. You know, um, the famous remark by Thomas Edison: "Genius is one percent inspiration and ninety nine percent perspiration." Mm -hmm. Well, if you can see me, I'm actually perspirating a lot right now. I had to run to Guitar Center right before the show and get a cord. Um, mental perspiration yeah mental perspiration <laughs> exactly um but yeah we really appreciate you uh you being here and uh i guess we want to we want to get into some uh we have some questions right from the listeners yeah, yeah. And, and from ourselves and um and you were very i i i like that you came in and you uh laid down some rules you know so i don't want you to be afraid to like uh you know if we do anything stupid or whatever you know it's just that you know people are suffering and i'm yeah so yeah. I want to make uh, maximum use of the time. Absolutely. If you like, we could just begin quickly sure. with yeah. the, the headlines this evening. Okay. This, you know, the United States is inventing all of these terminologies, which are becoming so nauseating because they're they're repeated as if there were some rational or some a consensus core to them so you know we no longer talk about uh, international law there's a new expression the rules-based international system where did rules come from we had international mm -hmm. law mm -hmm. rules is what the united states decides are the rules so the whole i hate to use the word but the whole discourse of international law has very surreptitiously been modified this rules-based international system. I bring it up because you read the headlines now and they talk about humanitarian pauses in Gaza. Hmm. Now, Blinken is going over to Israel to convince them to have an a humanitarian pause. What does that mean? No, really, hmm. somebody commented to me, a correspondent, does that mean we have a pause in the fighting, then we give them food, water, and then we kill them. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's a humanitarian pause. We're going to give 15 minutes so you can get your food. You know, it's like a yeah. that last dinner the yeah. night before they're electrocuted. Mm -hmm. the, whole, the demand of the international community has been for a ceasefire. Hmm. But now... The United States has reworked the terminology just like international law became a rules-based system. Now, a ceasefire has become a humanitarian pause. We'll give you 15 minutes to have your cup of water and your Twinkie before we pulverize you. Thank you very much. Right. We, we should, uh, I think, exercise uh exercise real caution when we watch these new terminologies be introduced uh and the other main question which is actually 
we're at a moment of truth now because the head of the Hezbollah, the uh, Sayyid Nasrallah, he's giving a speech tomorrow. Hmm. And he has not been seen since the uh, since October 7th. And it's going to be a turning point. There's no question about that. It is possible, it is possible that he's going to say, unless there's a ceasefire, we're joining in. And that might be the reason, I'm speculating, but it might be the reason why Blinken is going over to Israel because they are using the phrase humanitarian pause mm. in order to um, preempt uh, Nasrallah's call for either a ceasefire or we're entering the war. Uh, so I think there is a possibility that the reason he's going is so he could say to the world, you see, we already agreed on the humanitarian uh, pause. And now that satanic group Hezbollah still wants war. Hmm. So I think that may be what that might be what's going on now. Did you see they dropped a theatrical trailer for Nezrallah's speech? They really no, get media people at Hezbollah. And I, I assume knowing them that it's a very high quality. I think so. Yeah, I'm more hyped than it, uh, than for the next Marvel movie. Have you seen it? Uh, the the theatrical trailer. Yeah. It's, and what uh, did you think? It, I was very impressed. He uh, he slams his uh, his fist against the table. Uh, they they show him doing that. They don't, I don't. There's no words in it, but it's uh it's very uh, cinematic. They have a very uh, a very high level of competence. I I can I can tell you that. Uh, they're um, uh, they're very serious people. That's why the United States, excuse me, that's why Israel, in two thousand six, it did not want to launch a ground invasion in Lebanon, because really you don't want to fight the party of God. Hmm. These people have no fear whatsoever of giving their life. Hmm. None, and. Uh, that's a very difficult uh, foe to tangle with. I remember once I was, I can't remember who I was with, but I was with uh, people from Hezbollah. Not that I'm a militant or anything. I'm just mentioning it as a anecdote. But you appreciate the aesthetic and the... They had a translator. Okay, he was a simultaneous translator, which just boggled my mind, the level of competence and speed. Uh, they're devoted and they have a very high, very high standards. There was one guy, uh, I was touring the south of Lebanon and he looked like a spitting image of Mr. T, except Arab version, he's six foot five tall, and six foot five round, and that round is all muscle. And I, I told him that, you know what, I can make use of you if I bring you home, because if uh, Israel ever fires a um, bazooka at me, it'll just bounce off you.
Uh, Let me ask you this. Do you ever worry about that kind of stuff? Do you ever worry about your safety? Because I, I left a comment on Amy Schumer's uh, Instagram post the other day. And uh, the comment is, has got like 10,000 likes, you know. And I go, God, I hope Amy Schumer's not going to send her, her goons to my house and try to hurt me or my family. But do you have any do you have any worries about that personally? I'm trying to connect the dots here. Are you comparing Amy Schumer with the party of God? Yeah, well, she is very uh, powerful. <laughs> but yeah, that'd be a fun matchup. Amy think, versus Hezbollah. I think I was talking about high levels of competence, first of all, mm-hmm. and, not, <laughs> and not in comedy, second. Okay, okay. Is but, she talented? Is she talented? The movie Trainwreck is is pretty funny. It came out in like 2015. Judd Apatow directed it. I thought it was good, but uh, man, she's really uh, she's really on one. I, I, I you know I went to the same high school as Chuck Schumer. Okay, was three years ahead of me, and his sister friend was one year ahead of me. Now Chuck Schumer was a remarkably brilliant guy, no mm. question about it. He's evil, but you know you have to give credit where credit's due. He's a brilliant mm. guy. And his sister friend, believe me, I've met the smartest people in the world. I have. Um, friend was up there. Yeah. And the Out for Smokes podcast now. Excuse me? And now you've met the Out for Smokes podcast. So you've met all the smartest people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I'll grant that was a clever line, but beyond that, I'm not going. <laughs> okay. Let's get started, but just briefly introduce my introduce yourselves to me so I know who I'm talking to. Okay, um, I'm Mike Racine. I've appeared on uh, Conan, um, Comedy Central, and uh, Showtime and HBO. I'm a stand-up comic. This is uh, Twitter's uh, Sean McCarthy. Yeah, um, I read a lot of conspiracy theories on Twitter. That's what I'm most known for. Yeah, and then um, and this I'm, is I'm Scott Chaplin. Scott Chaplin. Um, I- I've been on Comedy Central. And I was on Fox News, but not for any like real reasons other than to look like an idiot, you know, at three in the morning. Well, there used to be a time when you did programs like this and people introduced their academic credentials. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, I hope that's not what you came here. Yeah, for. I can't introduce you a lack of something, you know, yeah, yeah. there's nothing to show you. I, did- I like to think I got my education on the streets, you know, a little bit. Well, I think I do think life experience is a as valid a um, it provides as valid an insight as anything you get from a book. Sure. When, I, when I want to, like yesterday, I had a fr- a friend who uh, is an org has been an organizer in Newark, New Jersey. Uh, I knew him at Princeton, but he was faithful to his roots and he returned to Newark. And I had a long talk with him about the possibilities of. Bernie's, excuse me, possibilities of Cornell West's campaign, because he knows the grassroots. He knows what's possible and what's not. Mm-hmm. And I respect that he's done it for 40 years. So you, you learn more from that than you learn from any book. Sure. I, uh, I, you did slip. You did say Bernie for a second. I, I know. Do you have an opinion on, on Bernie at this moment? You know, and and what he said so far. I really don't know your history with with him. I mean, were you someone, not necessarily who backed him, but appreciated him at least? Are you disappointed? 
Is there anything in, on that level? Are you looking at anybody? All right. Why don't we um, move on to another? <laughs> are you looking at anybody in DC right now? And I know this is an insane question and just genuinely shocked. Or does this seem like what is to be expected, which is everybody going, no, Hamas bad, Israel, do what you got to do? Well, um, first of all, I was very active in Bernie's campaign in 2016 and 2020. I invested a lot of my person in it, and I had a lot of hope in it. I think Bernie st stopped halfway because his campaign had two prongs to it. One was it was a primary campaign. He was running for president in the Democratic Party primary. But he always promised the second thing. And the, pro the second thing was he was promising a revolution, as in our revolution. And part of that, the critical part of that second prong of his, camp of his candidacy was he, Bernie Sanders was repeatedly asked, let's say you get elected. And I think actually he would have gotten elected were it not for South Carolina. Uh, if you know, David Plouffe was uh, Barack Obama's campaign manager, and Plouffe, in an interview, P-L-O-U-F-F-E, for those of you who don't remember, in an interview around six months ago, uh, Plouffe said, no, I take that back, four months ago, uh, Plouffe said there was a tiny window of opportunity to stop Bernie Sanders. He said it was Within 48 hours of South Carolina, we had to get everybody out of the race mm. except Biden. And that was the only way to win. Bernie was on his way. There's no question about that. And in those 48 hours, Obama and others made the crucial calls to um, Amy Klobuchar and Pete Buttigieg got them out of the race and then we know the outcome. Had he won the primary, and even Plouffe, you know, Plouffe said he was going to win, um, he would have beaten, I think he would have easily defeated Trump in the uh, um, election, and we would have had a Bernie, a President Bernie Sanders. However, having said that, Bernie was repeatedly asked, even if he got elected, which, as I just said, was a realistic possibility. Even if you got elected, how would you get your program through Congress? Which is an obvious question. How would you get it through? And Bernie always had one answer. We have to bring people out into the street. That's the only way you can push through any plank in my program. And that, to me, was the correct answer. There was no way except mass pressure from below to get the program through. So. There were two aspects to the Bernie campaign. There was the primary, but there was also what he called the book he wrote, Our Revolution, about mobilizing masses of people in order to push through his program. Just like the New Deal required organizing the CIO, organizing the working class to push it through. Well, what happened? Uh, first, he endorsed Biden, which I can understand. I I can disagree, but I can understand it. But that's not the problem. The problem was once Biden got elected, Bernie had two choices. Choice number one was to do what he said he was going to do. Biden is elected. We know Biden is not going to push through my plan, uh, my planks of my plan. So I'm going to bring people into the street to pressure Biden. That was choice option number one. Bernie chose option number two. 
option number two was to stay close to Biden and have his ear, so to speak, his left ear. Hmm. Tell him you should do this, you should do that. Because Bernie realized you couldn't do both. If, if he called people in the street, Biden, Schumer, Pelosi, they were just eat him up. What the F are you doing with bringing all these people to Washington? Mm -hmm. you can Biden. You're trying to pressure me. You're trying to force me. I'm the president of the United States. Right. But Bernie knew it was one or the other. It's like doing our own little January 6th, kind of. Yes, actually, yes. Yeah. And so he knew it was one or the other, and he chose Biden's ear. And at that point, uh, the prospects for pushing through his any of the planks in his program were drastically reduced. You know, some things were accomplished. We should be honest about that. There were some things that were accomplished, but was it our revolution? No, it was not. Now, that brings us to the relevance right now. If you watch Bernie's statements that he's been issuing since October 7th, He's been six degrees to the left of Biden. Hmm. He started out on October 7th or 8th, probably October 8th. He started out, those Hamas, horrible creatures, we've got to destroy them. Israel has the right to destroy them. And then barely a word about the Palestinians who are being killed or the situation and condition that may have caused the Hamas militants to do what they did. Uh, Bernie said in that first statement, he said, everything was working so wonderfully. We were all fighting for peace uh, for the Palestinians. And then along came Hamas and effed up everything. Well, no, Bernie, that's not what happened. What happened was the whole world gave up on the Palestinians, right. being totally ignored. All the talk was about this normalization between Saudi, Saudi Arabia, Israel, and the United States, and that would have all been over the heads of the Palestinians, and they would have been just left to languish and die in Gaza. So, and then if you follow it closely, when Biden started to talk about, he said, Israel has to fight the war according to international law. Then Bernie moves six more degrees to the left of Biden. Now Biden is saying, there's a humanitarian crisis in Gaza. Now Bernie moves again, six degrees to the left. So everything is carefully calibrated that he doesn't go seven degrees to the left of Biden because then he knows Biden will strike him down. Like, what are you saying? You know? Yeah. So uh, that, that was the choice that he made. I Obviously, I don't agree with that choice because the fact of the matter is for the first two weeks of the uh, murderous, the genocidal assault on Gaza, Bernie stayed silent. I mean, we have to be honest about that. He stayed yeah. silent. And I was really, I wasn't appalled. I was sickened by it. And uh, now he gave, you know, he gave a speech yesterday uh, in which he's talking about the humanitarian crisis, which of course, I'm, Glad he's saying that, but you understand at the same time, um, Blinken is talking about humanitarian pauses. Hmm. Everything is 
just very carefully calibrated. And frankly, there's just a real element of cynicism to it. There's no willingness, there's no willingness by Bernie to speak out. And the same thing, by the way, with the Ukraine, the Mm. same thing with the Ukraine. He would make statements like, I trust Biden on Ukraine. You trust Biden. Can you tell me something about his foreign policy experience that gives you grounds to uh, invest trust in him? Was he great in the war in Vietnam? Was he great on Iraq? Was he great on Afghanistan? What do you mean you trust him? Uh, but that's that's the um, the uh, that's the uh, uh, decision Bernie made. In order to keep Biden's ear, he couldn't be more than six degrees to the left of him. Well, I wanted to ask you about the, you talked about the ceasefire earlier and kind of the discrepancy between the U.S. public and the government we're seeing right now, where there's a data for progress poll that says 66% of adults want the U.S. to call for an immediate ceasefire, 80% of Democrats. Just today, actually, Senator Dick Durbin from Illinois became the first and so far only senator to call for a ceasefire. And I'm just uh, wondering, I know it's a, there's a lot, a myriad reasons, but it just seems that there's so much distance between what the overwhelming amount of the public wants and what the overwhelming amount of the uh, the Congress and the White House uh, wants. And that's exactly why, that's an excellent question. And that's why the spin control is coming in now. They're gonna claim the humanitarian pauses are a ceasefire. Mm. That's what they're going to do. Mm-hmm. So then everybody, they're, they're, they're gonna say, we did what you wanted, but we arranged the humanitarian pauses. No, that's not a ceasefire. That's not a ceasefire. That's 15 minutes more of life. It's giving the uh, uh, electrocuted prisoner that last meal the night before. Right. Uh, And and that's going to be our job to say, no, you're you're not going to play games with us. This is not word games. This is genocide. And I have a a long track record. And if you were to take all my books and you were to do a search, you will never see the word genocide used by me. I'm not, I've never used it. I don't, uh, I'm, I'm against, uh, I'm against uh, wooden epithets. I never use the word, I rarely, rarely, I use the word racist. I never use the word Zionist. I just, or I hate the current one is settler colonialism. Uh, these, these strike me as, uh, 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 incantations from cults. Uh, they don't convey information. They're not enlightening. Uh, and I never use it. However, I do think by a dictionary definition, what's going on now in Gaza is a genocide. Whether Israel will be able to, as it were, pull it off is a separate question because like tomorrow, there's going to be a speech by Nasrallah, which might cause Israel you no know, real problems. But when a country's declared policy is there is a population confined to a concentration camp, they can't leave, nobody can enter, and the declared policy is to deprive that population, not just the the Hamas leadership, to deprive the entire population of food, water, electricity, and fuel. And 
the, the president of that country has announced that we don't, there's no difference between civilians and combatants in Gaza. Uh, president Herzog said, they voted for ha uh, uh, they voted for Hamas, which is true. They haven't overthrown Hamas. Ergo, they support Hamas. And so there's no difference between the civilian population. So if you take all the six-year-olds in Gaza should overthrow Hamas, right? That's their right. All of the six-year-olds in Gaza should right. are supposed to overthrow right. Hamas. Yeah, exactly. Speaking about the election was in 2006. Right. So we're talking about 18 years. Most of the half the population wasn't even wasn't alive. alive. Yeah, wasn't even alive. Leaving that, you know, just as a technical point, they weren't even alive. Um, and then on top of that, uh, Netanyahu has uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu has said this is going to be a very long war. It's going to be much longer than any of the previous ones. Well, the last major one was in 2014, it lasted 51 days. So if you do the arithmetic and you do the, and you arrange the statements, what you're saying is for 51 plus days, nobody's getting food, water, electricity, or fuel. That's, that's what they're saying. So that is a declared policy of genocide. And I don't think we should, uh, we don't wanna cheapen the word and we don't want to just throw it around as if, as I said, it's a cult incantation. But on the other hand, as the as the expression has it, if the shoe fits, wear it. And the announced policy is genocidal. Um, so I think beginning tomorrow, the spin control is going to be, well, we gave them the ceasefire. And they're going to call the humanitarian pause the ceasefire. And actually, on its face, I wouldn't have noticed it. It wasn't mm -hmm. until somebody emailed me that I realized, no, that's not what a ceasefire is. Mm -hmm. um, and I would just say on the, the main demands currently being put forth, uh, okay, who was it that the... I just read this morning, I can't remember now who said it but uh the president of south africa and others have said the three demands have to be number one ceasefire number two release hostages and number three lift the blockade now for me the two the the, the second and third they go hand in hand so if you want to release the hostages, that's a perfectly reasonable demand, and it's, it's a, it's a, um, uh, it should of course be endorsed. But the people of Gaza have been held hostage for twenty years. For twenty years, how old are you guys? How old are you? If you don't mind me asking. Thirty-four. Thirty-four. Go ahead. Yeah, I'm thirty-six. Thirty-three. And I look pretty good, though, right, for my age? <laughs> if you, I'm not going to get into your comedy routine. It's not going <laughs> to be um, First of all, because I'm much funnier. So, if you can imagine you guys from the age of 14, from the, I don't know if any of you are Jewish, but I would say from the time that you were bar mitzvah, from the age of 13 or 14, if you can imagine 
being confined to an area that's 25 miles long, which is shorter than the marathon, and five miles wide. Now, where do you guys live? You live in New York, okay? So five miles wide means the distance from NYU to Columbia University. That's five miles. So Gaza is the length of a marathon and the width of the distance from NYU, West 4th Street to Columbia, 116th Street. Okay? Now imagine from the age of 14, if you can fix your mind on you know, roughly what, were you, what you were about at age 14. And now imagine that you were confined in this space, which I just described. It's among the most densely populated spaces on God's earth. Half the population suffers from what humanitarian organizations call, quote, extreme food insecurity. Imagine that 60% of your age cohort now I'm referring to you in your 30s, when your age cohort, no work, no possibility of work. Now, all you have to do, all you have to do from the age you were 14 to now, all you, the only thing you had left to do was just pace the perimeter of this parcel of land and you're just waiting to die. But that's, yeah. that's literally the case. Well, you could strap a green bandana on your head and... Uh... <laughs> well, that's what... Join the... Join the cool kids club. Well, that's what they did. Yeah. See, that's what they did because there yeah. was nothing else to do. Right. So uh, I, I forgot, how did we get here? What was the... Just uh, what's causing the discrepancy between public opinion and why are they so resistant to kind of giving in to public opinion on this issue? Right. But I forgot why I was... Uh, It'll come back to me in a moment, but why I was describing that situation. So um, the, 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 I wanted to come back to me. I'm, I'm struggling too hard. To... Well, for some reason, it's really hard to convey to people what it's like to live under the occupation. Because, a lot of people. Because, because nobody asks the question. That's yeah. the problem. Everybody wants to begin on October 7th. Right. And I, I said this afternoon to some people who interviewed me, I said, take a simple example, which anybody can understand. Let's say you live next door to a couple, okay? A husband and wife. You know there's a husband and wife living next door. And oddly enough, you never see the wife. She never leaves the house. And then every few months, you hear these screams and howls and shrieks coming from the house. And you begin to wonder, maybe something terrible is happening there. I really have to do something. So you call the police. And the police go. You see that they pulled up to the house. And then they leave. And then you wonder what happened. So you call up the precinct. Well, what happened with my complaint? And they said, well, you know, it's a domestic dispute. And we don't get involved in domestic disputes. Now, you're obviously much younger than myself, but in your parents' age, that's exactly what happened. Uh, up until the women's movement in the late 1960s, uh, if a woman was being battered at home, uh, it, you could, it would call the police. The police would come. 
And then they would be very queasy, very queasy. They would see the woman is all battered, mm -hmm. do anything. Because mm -hmm. that was the era when it was uh, considered a domestic dispute, which meant didn't, the government had no right to inter interfere. And also was the era of a man's home is his castle. That what he does in his home with his wife and with his children was mm -hmm. his business. Mm -hmm. Since you three are in comedy, you will know there was the classic uh, series, The Honeymooners, with Jackie Gleason. You'll be surprised to learn it was only 30 episodes. And yet it lives on and people watch it over and over again. In any great case, the reason I bring it up is one of the famous lines in the film is uh, Ralph, that was the character he played, turning to Alice, his wife, and saying, Alice, to the moon, to the moon. Yeah. And you laughed at it. I wish Amy Schumer's husband was a little more, you know, <laughs> like that. You, you Maybe took the phone away from her. <laughs> you laughed at it, but everybody knew there was an undercurrent of truth there. Right. Men gather their wives. Right. Through the moon. And so you felt a little bit queasy about that when you heard that line, because, you know, your dad may be doing that to your mom, mm -hmm. and you're all three watching the program, and hey, it ain't well that funny. Mm -hmm. In any event, so then... The person living next door, one day she knocks on the door and the uh, the wife comes to the door and she's obviously very emaciated and battered and has black eyes and she has a very despondent, despairing look. And um, then she says, my husband said I can't talk to anybody. And she closes the door. Okay. And then around 20 years later, around 20 years later, suddenly there are all these police cars surrounding the house. And what do you know? The wife stabbed the husband a hundred times. A mm -hmm. hundred times stabbed the husband to death. And now all the reporters are, or I should say the newspapers are carrying these lurid headlines, monster wife, right. dabs husband to death, monster wife. But you happen to live next door. And when the reporters come to you and they say to you, do you have a comment about that monster wife who stabbed her husband? And you're very reticent to give a comment because you don't think she's a monster. See, the reporter saw it from the day she stabbed the husband a hundred times, but you saw the 20 years before or heard the 20 years before because actually you never saw her. The people of Gaza never left they weren't able to testify to what it was like to live in a concentration camp for 20 years. They weren't able to testify to what it was like to be born into a concentration camp. 
And so uh, from, if you recall, on the first day, October 7th, the reports were there was a massive break uh, in by uh, Hamas militants and that 50 Israelis were killed. Uh, it wasn't clear how they got killed, whether it was crossfire, whether it was actual a firefight. It was not clear. And so the first day I I post I, I was uh, very happy when I heard that. I'm very happy when people escape concentration camps. Excuse me for that eccentricity of mine, but having both my parents lived in having both of my parents passed through World War II in concentration camps, I kind of it's I know it's one of those eccentricities of mine, uh, idiosyncrasies. I think it's kind of cool to break out of a concentration camp. But then, yeah, with motorcycles too. <laughs> they were on dirt bikes. I saw yeah. guys on dirt bikes right over ramps. Scott was saying it was like the movie Toy Soldiers. Yeah, you ever see March of the Wooden Soldiers with Laurel and Hardy? You know what? At the end, it it, it, it just it yeah, was, so it was one of my favorite. The end. I would watch the whole thing just for the end. A hundred. Yeah. We'll, we'll talk about that another time. By, but, yeah. by the way, I think you're confusing what happened in Gaza with. The wild one, and no Marlon Brando was <laughs> um, In any event, but by the third day, it was clear that something, uh, an atrocity of a significant magnitude had occurred. But being like that neighbor who heard the screams and shrieks of that woman in the house, uh, if you recall, beginning like the third or fourth day, no interviewer would let anybody go by without asking, of course you condemn what happened on October 7th. Of course you're horrified by it. Of course, of course. And I'm thinking, well, yeah. really, of course not. I'm willing to acknowledge Without, yeah. I'm willing to acknowledge that by a dictionary definition, an atrocity of a significant magnitude occurred on October 7th. But past that, I won't go. Just like if you look go back at the history of the abolitionists, who I assume you all guys you guys know, people like uh, William Lloyd Garrison, uh, Thaddeus Stevens, um, uh, Charles Sumner. Uh, when you go back, uh, when there were the slave revolts, like Nat Turner's slave revolt. Now the Nat Turner was the largest slave revolt in our history. Uh, it was brutal. I mean, yeah. chopped off the heads. They beheaded babies. They did. And uh, they were brutal. And yet, when you go back and look at William Lloyd Garrison, he was the editor of a, the abolitionist newspaper called The Liberator. And you can just Google it, which is what I did. Just Google William Lloyd Garrison, Nat Turner. He said it was horrible what happened. He, mm -hmm. But he never condemned the slave revolt. He mm -hmm. did not. I, I read it, I read it, I read it. He did not. And the moment I read uh, Garrison on Turner, it was a big sigh of relief for me because now I I could say, yeah, I took the right I took the right position. I am not going to condemn concentration camp inmates if they break out and whatever they do. I'm not going, as I said at the time, I won't approve, I won't disapprove, I won't condemn, I won't condone, I, I won't do it. And as I said, I was gratified uh, when I read Garrison, and it was the same thing, you know, during the Haitian Revolution, uh, 
thousands of whites were killed. Thousands. Yeah. And C.L.R. James, the, the Marxist uh, writer, um, he wrote the classic account. It's called Black Jacobins. And he refused to condemn what happened. And it's an interesting thing. A friend of mine, I have the Black Jacobins right here. I hope this, we get to it tonight. But it's an interesting thing. He refused to condemn. And then he came under a lot of pressure when the book was published to mm -hmm. edit that passage. Mm -hmm. And at the bottom, he has a footnote. And the footnote says, I came under a lot of pressure to edit this passage, period. I won't, period. <laughs> you know, I don't even, I won't, which I thought was really elegant. It just felt so silly when everybody was like, when it was like, do you condemn Hamas? Like, do you, you go like, yeah, I guess. What does that do? Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. It was sort of like uh, you had to begin by saying, I am not now and never have been a member of the Communist Party. It was right. a kind of ritual that you had to pass through. And as I said, I have no problem from a dictionary point of view saying there was an atrocity. But I am not going to start, if you'll excuse me, um, um, I'm, I'm not going to start with 100 stabbings. Mm. I'm not going to start there. You know, I won't go. I won't start there. As the journalists like to say, there's a backstory. And unless we get the backstory straight, don't ask me to condemn that woman. Now, we had cases here. You won't obviously be way too young to remember, but there were women in prison who killed their rapist guards. Uh, there was a famous That's case. That's Mike's mom. <laughs> oh, it's not. <laughs> if you um, uh, go Google Inez Garcia, I-N-E-Z, new word, G-A-R-C-I-A, -A, Inez Garcia. And there was a song uh, written about her. Now, I have to say, there, there are there are possible grounds for having reservations about elevating folks like that and turning Inez Garcia into a heroine. However, in the face of the kinds of physical abuse she was suffering, it's certainly underst understandable why she might finally take a knife and kill the prison guard. I would say it's... Um, it is an ironic fact, whether you, however you interpret it, that number one, Matt Turner, you know, his order to his uh, group was kill all whites. And as I said, that's exactly what he proceeded to do. Um, he's now been, he now occupies an honored place in American history. Now, you might think, well, Maybe those folks don't know what he actually did, but well, those babies shouldn't have had so many slaves. <laughs> well, you get my point that sure. yeah. I said that I'm not going to Elliot elevate them to a pantheon, but actually we have now John Brown during the uh there was a I, you guys perhaps know what was called Bloody Kansas. And bloody Kansas before the Civil War was the conflict within Kansas, whether this is going to become a slave state or whether it's going to become a free state. And it was very bloody. And in the course of that uh, bloody Kansas, 
at one point, John Brown, uh, he rounded up five, I think five, five particularly swinish pro-slavery pro fellows. And as W.E.B. Du Bois puts it, uh, let's see if I have it right here, because I'm just... Uh, I'm just finishing it now. Um, okay. I'll just describe from, I assume you know who W.E.B. Du Bois is? Yeah. The great African-American historian. God, just pretend. <laughs> you know, yeah, just, I nodded with you and then I realized I was lying, so I shook my okay. head now. Okay, yeah. well, Du Bois is the greatest African-American historian in our history. Hell yeah, there we go. So he writes, John Brown raised his hand and at the signal, the victims were hacked to death with broad swords. Why do I mention that? Well, John Brown was an absolutely fascinating person because he actually took the Bible very literally. Hmm. Slavery was a sin. It had to be abolished. He was transfixed, obsessed. It's... On the one hand, you think the guy's got loose screws upstairs, but on the other hand, he was he was right. It was a horrible thing, slavery, you know? So why do I mention that? Because that happened in 1859, okay? By 1861, just two years later, now John Brown was executed, okay? for treason because he had tried uh, to organize a, a revolt, a slave revolt. That's, that's, that's not exactly right, but I'm just gonna use it. So folks, if you're listening and they say, oh, Finkelstein doesn't know what he's talking about. He knows what he's talking about, but I'm just using it as a shorthand, a slave revolt. Um, he was executed and two years later, you ready for this? Everybody in the Union Army is singing, John Brown's body lies a moldering in the grave. John Brown's body lies a moldering in the grave. And then there's a line, the stars above in heaven are looking kindly down. And you think to yourself, ain't that strange? Just two years before he was hacking people to death, they didn't commit a crime. They were swinish figures, but they didn't actually commit a crime. And he was executed. And then he's the celebrated figure of the Civil War. Everybody's singing, John Brown's body lies a moldering in the grave, which is my way of saying, and this is where I'm going to have to leave you off. It's my way of saying history is a tricky business, and we don't know what's the verdict going to be on those guys who broke through the gates of Gaza concentration camp. Right. I don't yeah. think we know. I really don't. I don't believe uh, we know yet what the verdict is going to be on them. But Nat Turner and John Brown gives reason to wonder. Mm, as, sure. heinous, as heinous, I said, I will not argue based on what's the available information now, significant atrocities occurred, but so did they occur with Nat Turner, and so did they occur with John Brown.
I, I got to try and ask though. Uh, do it. Do you think any of these U.S. politicians are like blackmailed by Israeli intelligence into supporting it? Because you know they use these sexual blackmail against the Palestinians, and people say Jeffrey Epstein, Ghislaine Maxwell, no, or no, Israeli I, intelligence, these I, sorts of things. I, I I don't think so, and I'll tell you why. Because you know the principle of Occam Razor. Yeah, simplest I, yeah. explanation. The simplest explanation is sometimes right. <laughs> so what's the simplest explanation? Number one, people like Chuck Schumer, even though he came from humble background, and incidentally, so did Bernie Sanders, they both went to my high school, Bernie yeah. and, yes, they both went to Madison High School. A very, very modest Sanders, a very modest back, uh, background, Chuck Schumer saw there was an exterminator. And he was a very, I mean, his dress and his demeanor was very simple. Brilliant, but simple. Um, so uh, they've totally internalized our ruling ideology. They're part of the ruling class. I mean, let's be for real. Chuck Schumer is the state uh, uh, Senate majority leader. So they've totally internalized the ideology. Israel is a critical ally of the United States in the Middle East. Mm. First of all, because it's the only ally which is, so to speak, modern. It relates to our culture. It relates to our values. I mean, you might want to get Saudi Arabia on board, and you want to get Sisi on board, and you want to get uh, King Abdullah on board from Jordan. But you realize there's a cultural chasm that separates them from the United States. Whereas with Israel, you're talking to your, you know, you're talking to Benjamin Netanyahu, uh, the thug in the uh, the corner of the block. Mm -hmm. So, and the Middle East is a critical region for the United States for obvious reasons. So Israel took a huge blow on October 7th. Remember, Israel was the Mossad and all of these operations they conducted, the raid on Antebi. There's this whole history of this mystique. And suddenly, the most unbelievable thing happened, really inconceivable, in the most literal sense, inconceivable. Gaza is this tiny parcel of land. It's the most surveilled place on God's earth with all the high-tech spy, uh, tech, uh, high-tech high spyware, uh, Every step, every move, every breath of every person in Gaza is being monitored by Israel. And then on October 7th, an operation that according to Hamas, and I think it's plausible, an operation that had been planned for two years, mm -hmm. hear me? Two years and involved at least 2,000 people because Israel said it killed 1,500 Hamas members. And then there were the 290 Israelis who were taken hostage, which means there must have been another 500 involved, roughly speaking. It involved 2,000 members. It was planned for two years, and Israeli intelligence was totally in the dark. And it revealed a degree of incompetence that was breathtaking. So this was a, a fantastical catastrophe for Israel, but also for the US because that's our critical ally 
in the Middle East. So now they're giving Israel carte blanche to try to restore what Israelis call their deterrence capacity. And deterrence capacity is just a fancy technical term for the Arab world's fear of us, the mm. Arab world's dread of us. After October 7th, it was like, wait a second. These Israelis aren't so smart after all. You know, no, really. You know, how did these rinky-dink Hamas guys in this tiny parcel of land outsmart the Israelis? So from that point of view, you don't have to conjure up any kind of blackmail to understand why the U.S. is giving Israel carte blanche because they want to restore Israel, the Arab world's dread of Israel, the mm -hmm. Arab world's fear of Israel. And the second thing is, and I'm perfectly you know, happy to acknowledge it, not happy, I'm perfectly, I think it has to be acknowledged, uh, Biden's campaign contributions. There's no question he depends on Jewish money and, you know, rich Jews and Jews have money. That's a fact. They're the richest ethnic. Oh, you said it, not me. Right. Well, any survey will tell you that Jews are the richest ethno-religious group in the United States. So, um, and there's a lot of power there. It's an interesting fact. Now, I'm going to leave it off uh, that, that I'm not turning myself into a martyr. I'm way past martyrdom and it's not my cup of tea. But when I was denied tenure uh, at this rinky-dink university, really rinky-dink, DePaul University, I mean, it's a bigger shame to have tenure there than to not have shame. <laughs> uh, so, but when I was denied tenure at DePaul, I knew that behind the scenes, the board of uh, the board of uh, trustees, which consists of you know rich people, that's what board of trustees are. They were saying to the president, well, you know, I hear this guy Finkelstein is up for tenure and like, he's not going to get tenure, is he? And of course, the president's, of course, of course not. he's not going to get tenure. But what's very interesting about now is everything that was going on behind the scenes, and this goes to your question, everything that was going on behind the scenes is now right there in broad daylight at Harvard at the Wharton School, at the University of Pennsylvania, at Columbia University, all the donors are saying, it's very interesting, either you condemn what happened October 7th, or we're pulling $100 million mm. in our donations, $50 million in our donations. I mean, those are large sums of money that they're now threatening the universities with, which is my way of saying Biden understands that unless he toes the line in full, his campaign donations might also be pulled, just like the universities are now terrified, terrified by the prospect of uh, losing that money, that's, you know, for a university, that's, those are large sums of money. Um, and uh, the universities are caught in this, you could, what you call it, between a, a rock and a hard place, because what's going to happen? It's so obvious what's going to happen. 
Number one, they want to uphold the principle of academic freedom, which is to say, as it's understood now on college campuses, it means, among other things, administrations take no positions on political issues. So now with this pressure being exerted on them to take a position, that's going to violate a fundamental principle of academic freedom as it's come to be understood by university administrations. So that's one problem. But the second problem is a thousand times worse. You know what the second problem is? Let's say they go along with their donors and condemn what happened on October 7th. What's going to happen? All the campus students are going to say, but then why aren't you condemning what Israel is doing to the Occupy, doing mm -hmm. to Gaza? Mm -hmm. And could you imagine if they refuse to condemn it, they're exposed as total hypocrites. If they do condemn it, they're going to lose all the money anyway. Mm -hmm. So they don't know what to do. They're in a total quandary how to get out of this uh, mess that's arisen because the donors control so much of what goes on on the campus's life now, on the life of the campus. And on that, I'm going to leave you because, guys, I really didn't yeah. even eat today. Thank you. No, yeah, thank, thank you so much. I, I just want to say you're a personal hero of mine, so thank you very much for being well, here. You know, many people say that to me, and I have to tell you, and I mean this honestly, <laughs> I, I hate to hear that uh, so it puts more moral burden on me to do more, okay. to do more, and to do more. And uh, at I pressure to buy a microphone. No, 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 I didn't buy the microphone. Yeah, somebody just, I, it's funny you should say that. Somebody bought this lamp for me because they said the lighting was bad. Uh -huh. I forgot that somebody sent it to me and it came in a box. And you can imagine, I'm thinking, should I open this? Yeah, <laughs> I didn't yeah, know what yeah. it was. It's a slippery slope. Yeah, it, yeah, I, yeah. I don't know what it was. Well, very nice to meet yeah. you. Yeah, yeah. I hope you had more fun talking to us than you did talking to Eli Lake last night. You know, I have to, I, I want to be fair about this. Uh, people said, oh, how could you have gone on with them and they're morons? And they're I have to be honest, they did give me a hearing. Yeah. And it was two and a half hours. Yeah. And uh, Noam, what's his last name? I'm not like sure what seller? his last name is. Yeah, yeah the owner of the seller. Uh, his 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 um impulses were very different than my own, but they took me out to dinner. They treated me decently, and I felt that in itself was a breakthrough because mm. as you as you noticed, I was very uh I was not going to budge on calling it a genocide. I don't know if you listen to the program, but I wouldn't budge in calling it a genocide and calling Gaza a concentration camp. And a couple of times they tried to stop me and I wouldn't let them stop me. And then they acquiesced. They just accepted, okay, he's going to call it a genocide. We're not going to get him to stop. He's going to call it a concentration camp. We're not going to get him to stop. And I think personally, Part of the reason they acquiesced is part of them felt, well, it's not altogether crazy what he's saying. Sure. It's not altogether crazy what he's saying. And so I felt 
it was a victory. It was a victory. I don't think any program, you know, I wasn't on any left-wing podcasts. I don't, except for Katie Halper, hmm. the substitute for Jimmy Dore and Chris Hedges, just three, just three. And I am a known quantity among that left podcast universe. Hmm. They wouldn't have me on. And it was an irony of ironies that Michaela Peterson, Jordan Peterson's daughter, and Peterson's politics, you know, are polar opposite from me, including on Israel. She had me on. She was very respectful. She was an intense listener. And the last I looked, which was a few days ago, it got 350,000 views. Mm -hmm. um, and then the fellows last, the fellow last night, Noam, I can't, I can never remember his last name. They had me on. And they didn't at some point say, get the hell out of here. What are you saying? No, it didn't happen. So we have to see that, in my opinion, as, as a, 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 I don't want to use the term victory because it's not a, football match uh, as um, uh, as progress, as, well, as progress. Well, thank you, Norm. And congrats on getting to the comedy cellar before Mike Racine did. Yeah, OK. <laughs> before what? I don't I don't Mike I don't work at that it's, club. It's the dream of comedians to work club. at the comedy oh, cellar. Yeah, I, I heard and that. He, he, he doesn't does. work there either. Yeah, yeah. But you yeah. don't and you tried harder. Yeah. You know the fellow Daniel Simonson? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Good guy. Is he good? Yeah, he's good. I good like man. Him, yeah. yeah, yeah. He's fine. Very funny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they told me he was he was there last night. Uh so they told me he was uh, a funny guy. Okay. Yeah, I wish guy. you all the Thanks, very Norm. Best. Thanks so much. Thank you so much. Yeah. yeah. Bye bye. Well he yeah. stayed longer than he said he would. So yeah, yeah that was so sweet. He yeah. almost has to because time is like different to him like you go <laughs> yeah, yeah. it's and, and it's not even an insult it's an it's an insult to me we're even you know trying to research him ever since this happened what three weeks ago now mm -hmm. um you, you go i don't my brain is moving too quickly to retain a man who's like thoughtful like this and picking his words mm -hmm. and then he drags you into it and when you watch him debate someone when you watch him really deconstruct something it's like a lion eating a zebra like that's the mm -hmm. only way i can describe it mm -hmm. he's brilliant he makes me want to never talk again yeah so these are my final words i think right, Mike, right. what did you think yeah we're really fucking stupid like a fucking huh? dumb loser <laughs> You know, and the I thing, feel like a teacher. I didn't want to do nothing. You know, it's like yeah, okay, yeah. yeah, of course, sir. Yeah. And I know I actually do know enough about him to know that he hates being called people's personal hero, and <laughs> right. I still did still it. Did it yeah. And that's yeah. just like the human instinct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. it's like an autograph sign Well, here. you know, he does right. inspire me that he he paid a financial price for taking a moral stand. Mm -hmm. Kind of like us in this podcast. It, very much so. Yes. Yeah. Um. And uh, and I think that's noble. I think most people just kind of keep their head down. You know, mm -hmm. and kind of go with the flow. Mm -hmm. Don't uh, overturn the apple cart. So I did want to ask him that. He's got like a a style that is like uh, he's like no bullshit, and he doesn't really care about like offending people or yeah. You know, well, he's it's like, called he's, autism. That's yeah. what I, I know. That's what I mean. <laughs> he deals in in facts so exclusively yeah. that he has the time for you to say whatever you want because yeah. he's going to go and reach for the book right. that says that you're wrong. Right. And, mm -hmm. So time is irrelevant to him because you're wrong and he's got this. Yeah. Really fucking cool to see. Yeah. Cool. Um, why don't you guys join us over on Patreon? We'll recap yeah. this. Uh, Patreon.com we'll slash out for smokes. And, you know, Norman Finkelstein, 
you should definitely, if you haven't, uh, you should watch the documentary um, American Radical. It's about Norman Finkelstein. It's excellent. And, you know, his books are like number one on Amazon now. Uh, mm. So he's really kind of been been vindicated, vindicated by this yeah. horrific genocide. Yeah. He's a good looking guy, too. You know, yeah, he's 70, 69. 69, yeah. Somebody on Twitter said that he has like a, a Roman emperor build. Uh-huh. And I think that's very accurate. That's accurate like you yeah. could put his face in marble and you'd be like, this guy slow. Uh, this guy killed like two hundred thousand Gauls. <laughs> right. This guy took like a hundred thousand slaves. Right. Right. You know. Um. But yeah, yeah, he rocks. Yeah. I'm glad he did that. Yeah. All right. So we'll see you over on Patreon. We'll yeah. we'll talk about that episode and whatever else has happened. Patreon.com/slash Alpha Smokes. Bye bye.